So Acts 10, we're going to read the whole chapter. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day, at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? he asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. When Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. They called out asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the Centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived at Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said. I'm only a man myself. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Four days ago, I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly, 
a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, telling the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gifts of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Good morning, church. It's great to be with you this morning. My name's Sam. I'm one of the pastors here at Hunter Bible Church. There's been a lot of doing of puzzles over the last six months, hasn't there? There was a day earlier on in March this year when one of the large American companies that produces puzzles actually sold in one day more than they would during the, during a usual month in December. Now, I don't know if you've fallen prey to the puzzle pandemic, but if you have, you, you will have realized that there's always a moment when you're putting the puzzle together where the, the momentum shifts. No longer are you trying piece after piece after piece after piece and making no headway, but there's this moment in the process when everything starts to flow. I know this from my finely tuned skills of doing children's puzzles. And I assume that it's the same for when you do an adult puzzle. In the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 10 and 11, some significant pieces of the puzzle all fall into place, particularly for Peter and the early church at this point. It's a turning point, not just in the book of Acts, but also in history, human history. The events of Acts 10 and 11 actually paved the way for the gospel to go beyond the boundaries of Jerusalem and the surrounding regions of Judea and Samaria, and for the good news to then be taken out to the very ends of the earth. But there are a couple of hurdles that have to be overcome 
before that shift takes place. We're going to see what they are in a moment. But up until now, the main hurdle that the Gospels had to overcome is, is one of persecution. So we've seen the disciples being in prison. We've seen there have been flogs. Stephen is stoned and killed in, at the very end of chapter, chapter 7. In Acts chapter 9, that begins with, it says, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. But they are all hurdles that are being imposed from outside of the church. But here in Acts chapter 10, the gospel's main hurdle is actually the messenger, Peter, and the church in Jerusalem. They are the two big obstacles that stand in the way of the good news of Jesus marching out of Jerusalem and across the globe. But once again, we see that Jesus is still at work. And he's not going to let these hurdles become the thing that stop the gospel dead in its track. Now let's see how it all unfolds. In Acts chapter 10, it begins, we meet this guy called Cornelius. So have a look in verse 1 there. It says that Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. So Cornelius is a God-fearer, but he's not part of the Jewish nation, which meant he would always be an outsider. In fact, when Peter finally meets Cornelius and goes into his home, the first thing he says is in verse 28, he says, You are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile. Now, what's the problem with Gentiles? Well, Gentiles were idolaters. They worshipped other gods. Historically as well, they were uh, enemies of the people of God. And a centurion in particular, a centurion was responsible for law enforcement. And the Jewish people were living under Roman occupation at that time. But the big issue here is that they were regarded as unclean. And so anyone who paid a social visit to a Gentile would be invited to come in and accept some food and the eating of that food would involve the breaking of several Jewish dietary laws. And so Peter had this religious culture and the law in his background that prevented him from sharing the gospel of Jesus with someone like Cornelius. Despite the fact that gospel accounts, that the gospel accounts end with uh, Jesus charging the disciples to go out and to make disciples of all nations, it really actually would have been quite hard for Peter and the disciples to see how this was possible. And so God steps in, and he steps in to overcome Peter's religious and cultural hurdle. First, he sends an angel to Cornelius to tell Cornelius to go and fetch Peter from Joppa. And while Cornelius' servants are on the way, this is what happens to Peter. Pick it up in verse 10. While the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven open and something like a large sheet being leapt down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals, as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I've never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. 
Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times and immediately the sheep was taken back to heaven. Now what's going on here? Well, in the Old Testament, God had set up rituals and practices for the Jewish people to live by. And part of that was that certain foods were called clean and other foods were declared unclean. Now, why was that the case? Well, it wasn't, the food, it wasn't really about the food itself. It wasn't about hygiene or anything like that, but it was actually pointing to God's holiness. To, it was pointing to God's goodness and showing us his purity. And it was also appointed to the people of God to help them to see that on their own, that they were an unclean people. They were unable to approach God on their own. And so, so Peter has never eaten any of these foods. He's a grown man and he's never had a slice of bacon, for example. And here God is saying, get up and eat. And you think, well, so what? What's the point of this vision? Well, the point of the vision, whilst it's a little bit murky to us, it's super clear to Peter. Peter sees what's going on with the food and, and he sees that what's happening there with the food changes how he is then to relate to someone like Cornelius. He recognises that God is declaring all things to be clean. Have a look there in verse 28 again. He said to them, you're well aware it's against our law for a Jew to associate with or visit a Gentile, but God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure. Or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. Okay, so Peter has realized now that the good news of Jesus is for the Gentiles just as much as it is for the Jews. The second way that God makes it clear to Peter that the gospel is for the Gentiles is through the work of the Holy Spirit. Have a look at what happens in verse 44. Peter's in the middle of explaining the good news of, the gospel, of, of, of Jesus. And it says, whilst Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who had heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. Now, of course, the Holy Spirit is a necessary active participant in everyone's conversion. Whenever someone is saved, the Holy Spirit is active in that process. It's not a second blessing. It doesn't always manifest itself in tongues or anything like that. But the way the Holy Spirit comes here has a very particular purpose. And it's supposed to remind us of what happened in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came the first time on all of the believers and at that time, Peter and the others, they all spoke in tongues and people from different backgrounds could understand one another. And again, here in Acts chapter 10, when the Holy Spirit comes, he comes with this gift of tongues. 
And it's a sign to Peter and to the others who came with him that day that what they were witnessing was genuine conversion. And so Peter says in verse 47, he says, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So this was the clincher for Peter. The gospel was now for all people. In the same way that the gospel was for the Jews, it is also for the Gentiles. Now it's hard for us to understand how mind-blowing this was for them. But come with me down to uh, verse 45 and and you see the response of, of those who went with Peter. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter, they were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out, even on the Gentiles. They were astonished. See, God has just completely destroyed their worldview. But there was no denying what they saw and heard. But when Peter got back home to Jerusalem, there was a second hurdle that needed to be overcome. And that was the church. Have a look there in, in the way uh, chapter 11 begins. Verse 1, chapter 11, verse 1. The apostles and their believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Okay, so there's this criticism from the church. And so what Peter does is he, is he tells his story, tells his story to the church. Now, just as an aside, uh, a good question to ask is, why does all of the story get repeated again in, in detail? Why not just move from Peter told them the whole story to the outcome? And I, and I think the thing that Luke is doing here, and he does this in a couple of other places in the book of Acts, is he's showing us how the leaders of the church at the time were responding to the new things that God was doing. And this is the impressive thing about the early church leaders. When God clearly and plainly declared his will to them, they happily submitted to it. And that's the type of leader you need in a church, isn't it? One who, on encountering the clear revelation of God, moves accordingly, listens to God, and puts things into action along those lines. Would you pray for our leaders? that we would be like that? Now, as Peter retells the story, the clincher for the church is the coming of the Holy Spirit. Have a look at the summary he gives after retelling all the happenings with him and Cornelius. Verse 17. So if God gave them the same gift as he gave us, who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, Who was I to think that I could oppose God? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then God has granted even the Gentiles repentance unto life. It's amazing, isn't it? Now, we kind of take this for granted, but this is actually a remarkable moment in history. It's a significant moment in the history of the church God chose to use the events 
of Acts chapter 10 and Acts chapter 11 to make sure, to ensure that the gospel broke out of Jerusalem and to ensure that the gospel was available to the Gentiles and that the Gentiles had the same rights as believers as the, as the Israelite um, believers. So this chapter really paves the way for what is about to take place in the rest of the book of Acts. The church leaders didn't realize it at the time, but the church was about to be faced with an explosion of the gospel into the Gentile world on a scale that they could not have imagined. Saul, who became Paul, chapter 9 last week, he had been set aside to preach the good news to the nations. And this is the event that prepared the church for that moment. Now let's just stop and pause there for a moment. What this means is the events of Acts chapter 10 and 11 are, are one of the most significant events in your story of salvation. If it were not for Acts chapter 10 and 11, the church may never have known the full extent, scope, breadth of the gospel. This is actually how the gospel came to be preached in Newcastle today. We get to hear this gospel today because of Acts chapter 10 and 11. It was, it's preached across the world today because God chose to use these events to put all of the pieces of the puzzle together for Peter and the early church. The first response to this passage is just to praise God for his remarkable work and the way the Holy Spirit came on those Gentile believers. So that's the story, right? But buried in the details of the story is the message that Peter preached. We're going to read quite a large section here. So verse 34, pick it up. He says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know that you know what has happened throughout the province of, of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under, under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now there's loads of things we could draw out of this little mini sermon of Peter's. I'm going to look at four things. First thing we see here is that the good news is anchored in history. It seems that Cornelius and his household They'd come to somehow hear about Jesus. They knew about him and some of the things that he had done. And here, Peter is just confirming that those things were true. 
He's saying they were real. They really took place. And so in verse 39, he says, we are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews in Jerusalem. And then in verse 41, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen. He, the emphatic point he's making is there were eyewitnesses to his life, his death, his resurrection. He says, everything you heard, I saw it. It's true. And so if you put your trust in Jesus, then what you're doing is not basing your life on a philosophy, but you're, you're giving your life to a person. You're giving your life to a person who really lived, who really died, and who is really still alive today. Christianity is based on a history that we can test and depend on. The second thing we see about Peter's message, he says right up front in verse 34, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Now, now Peter here is talking about his realization that the gospel is not just for the Jews, but it's also for the Gentiles. He, he's his religious and his cultural bias has, has been shattered, as we saw. And now he's willing to step inside the house of this, this Gentile and proclaim the good news of Jesus to them. But this truth that he speaks is a great reminder to us. And it actually shatters our cultural hang-ups as well. See, what's our cultural hang-up? It's the belief, isn't it, that all people are basically good. And so if there really is a God, well, he'll be okay with me because I haven't done anything too bad. I'm actually a pretty good bloke, right? Well, have a look at the type of guy Cornelius was. He was a good bloke. Verse 1, at Caesarea, there was chapter 10, verse 1, I should say. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment. He and all his family were devout and God-fearing. He gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. Surely this guy would be given the top bloke award, right? Top of his field. Family man. Devout and God-fearing. Generous. Prayed regularly. Give this man the one-way ticket to heaven, right? Well, actually, no. Cornelius still needed salvation. In Acts chapter 11, as Peter recounts the story, this is what he says in verse 13. He says that the angel appeared in his house and said, Send to Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He will bring you a message through which you and all your household will be saved. So the angel comes and says, You need Peter to come and tell you about Jesus so that you and your whole family can be saved. Salvation through Jesus is a universal need. Being spiritual or being devout or being a good person, being successful, doesn't qualify us for salvation. It might gain you some friends, but not eternal salvation. Sometimes I think we look at friends or we can look at our city and we, we can be tempted to think, well, they, they don't really need Jesus. 
their life is great. They have a great family. They're doing pretty well in their aspirational goals in life. They get on pretty well with people. What more do they need? Well, what they need, who they need, who we need, is Jesus. Every single one of us. God does not show favoritism. You can be the the bottom of the rung, the worst of sinners like we saw last week with, with Saul who became Paul. Or you can be the top of the rung, like, like we see here with Cornelius. You still need Jesus. And the wonderful thing is that the good news is for all people. He invites all people to come to him. And that's what we see as we keep going through the book of Acts. You get the high rollers coming to Jesus. You get the down and outers coming to Jesus. You get the middle of the road coming to Jesus. Because it doesn't matter where you are in society's pecking order. We all need Jesus. So God does not show favoritism. And what that means secondly, sorry, thirdly, is that Jesus is the judge of all. Have a look there in verse 42. It says, He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. Now think about that term, the living and the dead. You can't really get more inclusive than that, can you? He's not just the judge of Israel. He's not just the judge that can be confined within some within the walls of a religion. He's the judge over every person. And he does not show favoritism. Every person will be called to give an account to him. There will be no partiality when, when Jesus returns. And the proof that Jesus is judge is actually the resurrection. Jesus is not a king who's confined to the boundaries of Israel. He's, he's a king who's alive and reigning over, over, over earth today, over all people. And he's everyone's judge. So the resurrection means we can't get away with saying, look, I'm just not really into Jesus because it doesn't matter doesn't matter if you're into him or not. He's still alive today. He's still ruling over us in heaven today. And we will still one day give an account to him. And the question for us is not whether we've been good enough for Jesus. No, the question that he will ask us, ask us that day is, have we acknowledged the king? Have we given Jesus a throne in our lives? So the good news that Peter proclaimed, well, firstly, it's real. He lived, he died, and he really rose again. Secondly, God has no favorites. Jesus is actually for everyone. Thirdly, Jesus is judge of all. And finally, the message that he preached was that Jesus' salvation is for all who believe. Have a look in verse 43. It says there, All the prophets testify about him, that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Now, what is our sin? 
Well, it's what we have not acknowledged. It's basically that we have not acknowledged Jesus as king. And we do that in a hundred different ways. Right? Recently, we caught one of the kids eating chocolate from the cupboard before breakfast. And then the, we went to the cupboard and just the top row of the chocolate had been kind of nibbled away. And, uh, and then it happened again uh, just the other day. And it's just good old-fashioned disobedience, isn't it? It's kind of funny as well, but good old-fashioned disobedience. But sometimes the kids, they just ignore me or, or, or they just choose not to hear me or they argue back at me. Kids have a hundred different ways that they can disobey their parents or rebel against their parents. And it's like, that's like us and God. There are hundreds of ways that we can rebel against God. We ignore him. We choose not to obey him. We openly defy him. We hate him. We do it in all sorts of different ways. And I think the problem for us is, is that we can't see why that matters. We can't see how that would be offensive to God. But when we see what he's done to provide forgiveness, it ought to sink in a little more. Verse 39, have a look there. This is what it says. They killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day. See, Jesus dies to deal with our sin. And if you have an older version of the NIV in front of you, or if you grab uh, an ESV, the English Standard Version, it'll actually read like this. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. Now, that's a kind of strange phrase, isn't it? And in the Old Testament, hanging someone on a tree was their mode of capital punishment. But the fact that they were hung on a tree was a sign that they were under the curse of the law and under the curse of God. And that is how Jesus made salvation possible for all. Jesus wears the curse of God on our behalf. And at that point, we begin to see just how much our sin and rebellion matters to God. He sends his son to die a death that you and I deserve, to be cursed by God himself and offer us forgiveness. Isn't that amazing? Jesus becomes cursed for our sake. He trades places with us and the innocent man dies so guilty people like you and I can go free. And that forgiveness that's achieved through his death is available to all who believe. Now, what do we do with this? Well, I think we need to be reminded that God doesn't show favoritism. And so as we look at our city and our neighbours, we need to be convinced that Jesus is judge. Because, friends, if we're not convinced that Jesus is judge of all and that he doesn't show favoritism in his judgment, we're simply not going to share life-saving news with people. A whole city will actually face the anger of God on their own without any hope of salvation. 
Don't assume that your successful, kind, spiritual, generous and popular friend will somehow get a special exemption from judgment. They need Jesus. And we also need to be convinced that anyone can be saved, that everyone who believes in him will receive forgiveness of sins. And that's remarkable, isn't it? Absolutely remarkable. Maybe you need to be reminded of that. Maybe you need to be reminded of the fact that it doesn't matter how guilty you feel before God, your sin can be forgiven through Jesus. Nor is it too much for God to kind of forgive your long-standing, lifelong rebellion against Him if that's where you're at. Everyone who believes in Jesus receives eternal life. What a wonderful message we get to proclaim. The gospel message is the great leveller in our society. It flattens out all of the social stratas we want to build. It flattens out racial inequality. It drags down our air of self-importance. It says to someone like Cornelius, you are devout, but your devotion is not enough. It says to the worst of sinners, salvation is available for you too. Because the real historical Jesus died a death that you and I deserve and offers us forgiveness. Friends, if you've never come to Jesus, can I encourage you to come to him today? And if you, if you want to know more, then the best thing to do is to come along to our life series and work out exactly who he is. Work out exactly what it is that, that, that he has done. Come and join us in living our lives for Jesus. How about I pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Acts 10 and 11. And whilst it's just two chapters of one part of the book of Acts, one part of the Bible, we thank you that it's there to remind us that you do not show favoritism, that Jesus is the judge of all, and that salvation is, avail is freely available to everyone who believes on him. We thank you that Peter proclaimed it. And because of your work of the Holy Spirit in the household of Cornelius, that good news is able to be preached right here in Newcastle today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.